Good morning. If you would, please take your Bibles and open with me to Ephesians chapter 4. Ephesians chapter 4, we're going to look at verses 7 to 12 this morning. And as you're turning there, let me, let me frame the next two Sundays for us. Uh, for the last few weeks, we've been in this series on the church. And so far, we've considered some foundational aspects of church life. Membership, discipline, elders, and deacons. Unity on, on these points is essential. In order for a church to function faithfully, we have to know who belongs to the church. That's membership. We have to uphold the purity of the gospel. That's discipline. We need pastors who will shepherd the flock. That's elders. And we need committed servants who will ensure that the ministry of the word remains our priority. That's deacons. Again, unity in these areas is essential. If we're going to continue to build faithfully going forward then we have to be on the same page as to the foundation that we're building on. Starting today, my hope is to move from the structure of the church to the ministry of the body. That's the shift that we're making today and next Sunday. Once we have those foundations properly established, how do we carry out the ministry of the church? What is ministry? How do we do ministry so that the church grows? What does it even mean for a church to grow? Those are the kinds of questions that I want to answer this morning and, God willing, next Sunday. And while I never want to engage in hyperbole as a pastor, I would say that these two sermons, today and next Sunday, these two sermons are, are quite significant. These messages are pretty much the core of how the elders think about the everyday life of the local church. So if you, or have you ever found yourself asking, what, what exactly is the ministry and what is our church trying to accomplish? That's what we're hoping to frame for you this Sunday and God willing next Sunday. So that's where we're headed and then we'll be back to our series in John following, following that. So with that framing in view, let's turn our attention to Ephesians chapter 4. Our focus this morning will be verses 7 to 12, but I'm going to start reading in verse 1. Uh, to give us the context. So please follow along with me. This is what the Holy Spirit says to the church, beginning in verse 1 of Ephesians chapter 4. I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father over all, who is over all and through all and in all. But grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore, it says, when he ascended on high, he led a host of captives and he gave gifts to men. In saying he ascended, what does it mean but that he had also descended? Into the lower regions, the earth. He who descended is the one who also ascended far above all things, that he might fill all things. And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ. This is the word of the Lord given to us for our good. Let's pray and ask God to bless our time in his word this morning. Would you pray with me? 
Heavenly Father, help us over this Sunday and next Sunday in particular to have our minds renewed and our perspective on ministry and growth shaped by the Scriptures. We want to be a church that is about the ministry of the Gospel. We want to be a church that grows. But more than that, we want to think of those things in biblical terms. So please help us, God. Please give us insight. Please open our minds to understand what you have revealed in the Scriptures. We thank you that the Bible is clear. We thank you that the Holy Spirit indwells each and every believer so that illumination from the Spirit to the Christian is your gift of grace every time we open the Bible. Father, please help us. Please keep me from error. Please cause your church here at Fisherville to grow, to be strengthened, to mature, to stand firm, and to be equipped, Father, for the work of ministry that you have called us to do. We pray these things, Father, confident that you hear us. In Jesus' name, amen. I'd like to begin this morning with a question. Are you called to the ministry? That's the question that I want you to answer. Are you a Christian and a member of First Baptist Fisherville? Are you called to the ministry? Most people will probably answer no. And I understand why. If by the ministry we mean having your vocation take place within the church, then most people will answer no. Most Christians will spend the majority of their time outside of church-related activities. So, if the ministry equals vocation in the church, then the number of Christians that are called to the ministry is indeed quite small. But what if the Bible's definition of the ministry is broader than church vocation? What if Scripture defined ministry not as an activity reserved for a few, but as the calling of each and every Christian? Of course, that would change our answer, wouldn't it? In fact, much of what we think about church would have to change. Instead of being a place where I am served, church becomes the arena where I use my gifts to serve others. Rather than assuming I have little to offer the body of Christ, I would now begin to see how Christ's grace equips me to do the work that he's given to his church. So if the Bible's definition of ministry is broader than church vocation, then our answer and even our perspective on church would have to change. Are you called to the ministry? And friends, I will contend that that is exactly what the Apostle Paul is doing in Ephesians chapter 4. Through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, Paul defines the ministry in a way that upends most of contemporary church thinking. Paul takes modern conceptions of the church here in Ephesians 4 and he turns them upside down, as the Bible is wont to do. (laughs) I mean, you can see this straight away in the passage. They tell you in preaching class, do not give away the payoff to the sermon too early, but I'm about to break that rule. I'm going to tell you the payoff to the whole sermon right here at the start. Look at verse 12, and notice how Paul upends contemporary thinking about ministry. Verse 12, what are pastors supposed to do? Equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ. So who's doing the ministry in verse 12? The saints. The entire church. Each and every believer who's been born again by the Spirit. 
and entrusted with God's word. Who's doing the ministry? We are. And what is that ministry? It's nothing less than building up the body of Christ until we all reach maturity together in the faith. Far from being the domain of only a few people, ministry is the calling of each and every Christian in the church. To be a Christian is to be a minister of Christ. That's Paul's definition. Now, in saying this, I am not suggesting that it's wrong to set aside specific people for vocational service to the church. I fully recognize the potential irony in my delivering this sermon. My vocation is in the church. So I understand the irony. My goal is not to denigrate pastoral ministry. Rather, my goal is to elevate every member ministry in the church. Because that's what Paul says we ought to do. That's what the Apostle says we ought to do in Ephesians 4. We equip the saints. We equip the church. We equip Christians to do the work of the ministry. That's the big picture for Ephesians chapter 4. That's where we're going. I just told you the conclusion to the sermon in the intro. That's where we're going. What I want to do for the remainder of our time is start here at the beginning and unpack how Paul reaches that conclusion. How does he get to verse 12? How does he get to every member ministry? According to Paul, what convictions do we have to hold in order to pursue the vision in verse 12? There are three convictions in particular we're going to see. And these convictions build on one another until we reach that conclusion in verse 12. Let me give them to you in advance. The first conviction has to do with Christ's grace to the Christian. The second focuses on Christ's word in the Christian's life. And the third conviction brings it all together with Christ's work inside of his body, within the church. So grace and word and work. Those are the convictions that, taken together, get us to verse 12. And that's what I want us to think about this morning. Let's begin then in verses 7 to 10 with conviction number 1 about biblical ministry. Every believer is equipped with Christ's grace. That's conviction number one. Every believer is equipped with Christ's grace. To give you a little context, chapter 4 begins a new section in Paul's letter to the Ephesians. He shifts from an explanation of the gospel to the application of that same message. You can see it there in verse 1 where Paul calls the believers to walk in a manner worthy of the calling. There's a lot we could say about that phrase, but the main idea is to live in a way that confirms your testimony of faith in Christ. To walk worthy is to live in such a way that people understand Jesus is your Lord. That's what it means to live worthy. You demonstrate the Lordship of Christ. And central to that calling, you'll notice is the church's unity in the gospel. The reason I started reading in verse 1 is that I wanted you to hear this note of unity. I hope you caught it when we read those opening verses. Seven times, seven times in the first six verses of chapter 4, Paul references unity. One body, one spirit, one hope, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father over all. Do you hear it? Part of the glory of the gospel 
is the unity that Christ creates in his church. There is one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father over all. So as we go through the rest of this sermon, I want you to keep hold of this theme of unity. Why should you care about building up other Christians? Why not just spend all of your time focused on you and your spiritual well-being? Why should you care about other Christians? Because there's one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father overall, and we've all been united to Him through the one Lord Jesus Christ. That's why you should care. That's why the ministry of the church matters, because you and I are joined together in the one body of Christ. I want you to hear that theme of unity through the whole sermon, because if we lose sight of that unity, then the rest of what Paul says is just going to sound like mushy jargon. Unity is the foundation for a church's ministry. Your spiritual life is tied up with mine, and mine is tied up with yours. And therefore, the ministry of all is necessary for each. In the gospel, there's one body. But as Paul comes to verse 7, he makes a surprising shift. Verses 1 to 6 are all about unity. He's hammering the one Lord, one faith, one baptism. But then when he gets to verse 7, he shifts from the one body to each individual. Look again, verse 7. But grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Now, the grace in view here is not the saving grace of gospel faith. Paul explained that grace in chapters 1 and 2. The grace here is what we might call the grace of gifting. And and this makes sense because grace and gift are related concepts. In fact, Paul repeatedly uses this gift language to make this exact point. I mean, notice it in the text. Verse 7, verse 8, verse 11, three times What does the Lord do? He gives. He gives. Grace and gift, they're related concepts. Every believer, without exception, has received the grace of gifting from the Lord Jesus Christ. And these gifts are the fruit of Jesus' saving work on the cross. This is Paul's point in verses 8 to 10. There's a lot that we would need to unpack in verses 8 to 10 if we stopped here. But the the basic point is relatively clear. Paul quotes from Psalm 68, which celebrates God's victory over his enemies. You can read the psalm this afternoon if you'd like to. Psalm 68. In the psalm, God is ascending to heaven in victory. And part of his victory train is that he gives gifts to his people. He shares the spoils of his victory with those who belong to him. That's Psalm 68. Here in Ephesians 4, Paul takes Psalm 68 and he applies it in the ultimate sense to the Lord Jesus Christ. Every victory of God in the Old Testament was a small picture, a shadow of Christ's victory at the cross. That's Paul's point. In his incarnation, Christ descended to earth. That's verse 9. He defeated sin and death. He ascended again to heaven's throne, that's verse 10. And from that throne, Christ does what God does. He shares the victory with his people. It's a fascinating use of the Old Testament. It's really fascinating. Psalm 68 celebrates the victory of God. And Paul says Jesus' ascension is the ultimate fulfillment of that victory. 
The larger point for our purpose has to do with gifting. Christ conquered on the cross and the fruit of his victory are these gifts of grace that he gives to his people. Like a king riding in in royal triumph, Jesus bestows gifts to his people. With his grace, he showers them. This is astounding. This is astounding if you stop and think about it. When you and I minister to one another, we are tangible expressions of grace from the victorious Jesus Christ. That'll change the way you think about a church member. Just think about this for a moment. It's really a staggering thought. To minister within the body of Christ is to be an expression of grace from the Lord Jesus to the people whom he loves. Think about how that changes your perspective on taking a meal to someone who's just had surgery or or had a child. Think about how it changes your perspective on that short prayer that you text to another church member knowing that they're in a difficult season. Think of how it changes your perspective on that hard conversation where you lovingly challenge another member to live in step with the gospel. Think of how it changes the way you receive that conversation when you're the one who needs to be challenged. Do you see what verse 7 is doing? Verse 7 is taking the everyday life of the church and it's recasting those things in terms of gospel grace. Those seemingly simple actions are not simple at all. They are far more than what they appear on the surface. Look, on the surface, taking a meal to someone looks like a small thing, perhaps even a forgettable thing. But in reality, that action is grace manifested, embodied, applied within the church. And Paul's point is that every Christian, every member of the local church has received the grace of God to do this kind of ministry. So at the risk of stating the obvious, brothers and sisters, let me remind you that your membership in the body of Christ is not accidental. It's purposeful. You are not unnecessary to the life and ministry of the church. Every member is equipped with the grace of Christ. And flowing from this point, I want us to recover an old ministry. I want us to recover an old ministry. The longer that I'm here, the longer that you'll know I like old things. (laughs) I don't like digital things. I don't know how to use them. Um, I like old things. I think there's a ton of wisdom to be found in how the saints of old practiced the faith. Not everything new is better. So I want us to recover an old ministry. It's what Christians historically called the ministry of the pew. Now, I know that we don't have pews, but the ministry of the rows just sounds weird. Yeah, the ministry of the chairs. We do have that ministry, and if you'd like to serve, you can talk to Joe. I want us to recover the ministry of the pew. What is that? Put simply, the ministry of the pew is the spiritual upbuilding that occurs between the members of the church in everyday life. It's different from the ministry of the pulpit that we're going to talk about in just a second. The ministry of the pew is what you could call the grassroots ministry of the church. It's organic, it's natural, it's unprogrammed. It's where each member from his or her everyday seat in the pew 
helps another member grow to be more like Jesus. Friends, this is a vital ministry in the church. It's vital for the health of the church. Here's why. The ministry of the pew pushes back against two faulty ideas that easily creep into a congregation. One idea is that my gifts are sufficient for my own spiritual life. I don't need any other Christians. The other idea is that my gifts are unnecessary for the spiritual life of others. No other Christians need me. Friends, both of those ideas are faulty. And they produce spiritual lethargy in the church. If Christ has given gifts to each one of us, then no one's gifting is sufficient on its own. You have gifts of grace that I don't have. You have grace that will help me grow that apart from you I would not receive. There is ministry that you can do to me that apart from you I would not receive it as God intends. What's more, if Christ has given gifts to each one of us, then no one's gifting is unnecessary for the church's life. You may have heard C.S. Lewis say one time, you've never met a mere mortal. You've never met a normal, ordinary human being. What does he mean by that? He means this, that every Christian, every believer, has been given grace from Christ. You have gifts that we would miss out on without you, and therefore we cannot possibly grow as Christ intends apart from you. This is the ministry of the pew, to use that old phrase. Christ has given grace to each one of us. You can't grow on your own and the church can't grow without you. Practically then, practically speaking, I hope you see the absolute necessity of gathering with the people of God every Lord's Day, week in and week out. When you are not here, we are deprived of some measure of grace. But when you are here, we receive grace from you And you impart grace to us. This absolute necessity of being with the body of Christ. It's not simply about church attendance. It's not about pumping up numbers. It's about the spiritual health of the body. Both your health and ours. So verse 7 teaches us that we ought to prioritize the ministry of one another in the gathering of of the church because that's how we steward Christ's grace. Both the grace that He has given us to minister and the grace he intends us to receive from others. Every believer has been equipped with Christ's grace. Our second conviction about ministry builds right on from there. Verse 11, conviction number two. Each Christian grows in grace through the ministry of Christ's word. Each Christian grows in grace through the ministry of Christ's word. Having established that Christ gives gifts to his people, Paul Paul now starts to zero in on one particular gift. And surprisingly, this gift is not a skill, but but a group of people. Notice again verse 11. And he, that's Christ, he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and teachers to equip the saints. Now, this is another point in the passage where we could spend a lot of time talking interpretation. 
there's a good bit to think about in verse 11. For our purpose, we just need to answer one question. What ties together those offices in verse 11? What ties them together? Paul is clearly referring to groups of people who hold a particular office. What's the common factor across those offices? Well, the answer is the ministry of God's word. That's the common factor. Think about it. The apostles and prophets were specially used by God in the revelation, recording, and confirmation of Scripture. Since we have the completed Word of God, we no longer have apostles and prophets. But that was their role, to confirm the Word of God. Evangelists, like Philip in the book of Acts, uniquely called to do what? Spread the Word through gospel witness. And shepherds and teachers minister the Word within the church body through instruction, teaching, of the, of the scriptures. You see, that, that's the common factor across the groups. It's the word of God that ties these offices together. And it's that final group that gets our attention this morning. Shepherds and teachers. That's the phrase I want to zero in on. Shepherds and teachers. Paul uses two terms to describe one office. It's the office of pastor. Now what's helpful here is how the phrase shepherds and teachers clarifies the job of a pastor. This this is a clarification that we need in our day. What exactly is a pastor supposed to do? I actually get asked that question a good bit. What do you do all week? Many things. What exactly is a pastor supposed to do? There's a good bit of confusion on that question. If you don't believe me, then just go to a Christian bookstore and look at the books that pass on teaching about pastoral ministry. Most of them have no correlation to anything in this phrase, shepherds and teachers. So let's take the opportunity afforded by the text and let's clarify this question. What is a pastor supposed to do? Here's my far too brief definition drawn from Ephesians 4. Pastors shepherd Christ's body by teaching Christ's word. That's what they do. Pastors shepherd Christ's body by teaching Christ's word. Each part of that definition is essential and should not be overlooked. At the core, a pastor is a shepherd. He is not an executive. He does not exist to make decisions. He is not a life coach. He does not dispense advice. He is not a visionary. A pastor is a shepherd. That's a humble role, to shepherd. The image is all through the Bible, often applied to the life of God's people. The church is the flock of God, and we are journeying through the wilderness of this world to the green pastures of the heavenly city. But scripture tells us that this journey is dangerous. There are enemies without and enemies within. So as an expression of grace... Christ gives shepherds to his flock to lead them. This is the core of a pastor's job. He takes care of Jesus' people. The flock doesn't belong to the pastor. Jesus is the chief shepherd. And therefore, every pastor will stand before the chief shepherd to give an account. How did you tend my flock? What did you feed them with? Did you feed them with your word or with mine? Jesus will ask. That's the pastor's identity. It's not flashy. 
He's not an executive, a life coach, a visionary. He's a shepherd. That's who he is. And flowing from that identity is the pastor's work. He teaches God's word to the church so that each member grows in grace. Please hear me on this next part. I can safely say that I speak for all of the elders here at First Baptist Fisherville on this next point. Please hear me on this this point. All that a pastor has to give the church is the word of God. That's all that he has to give is the word of God. This is why the word and prayer are the bedrock tools of a pastor because all we have to give you is the word of God. Take away the word of God and a pastor has nothing. He has no authority apart from the Bible. He must lead in step with the scriptures. He has no wisdom apart from scripture explained and applied. A pastor is not an expert on all matters of life, only on the matters related to faith and the care of your soul. Friends, take away the word and the pastor has no voice. In fact, the wise pastor leverages everything on the Bible. Because that's how the chief shepherd's voice is heard in the church, through the ministry of God's word. That's how Jesus leads his sheep, through shepherds that feed them with the word of God. So what is is a pastor? He's a shepherd who ministers the word with prayer. Brothers and sisters, I'm reminding you of this. I'm reminding you of this because A, there's tons of cultural confusion about what a pastor's supposed to do. But B, I'm also reminding you of this because it helps to round out that application from the first point. I just urged all of us to make the gathering of the church a priority. And perhaps surprisingly, thinking about the role of pastors helps explain why the gathering of the church is so important. It's because of this ministry of the word. Just consider the flow of the passage. Verse 7, Christ gives gifts to his church. Verse 11, one such gift is shepherds, uh, shepherd teachers who minister the word of God. And therefore, the word-driven ministry of a church overseen by faithful shepherds is Christ's means of growing you in his grace. By all means, friends, you should read the Bible regularly. We need to hear the Word of God, and you should be reading it regularly in your own lives. If you're not regularly reading the Bible, friend, that's the first step of spiritual growth for you. You need to regularly read God's Word on your own. But reading it on your own is not sufficient. We need to hear the Word of God proclaimed in the life of the church. Think about it, that up until 500 years ago, we didn't even have the Bible in the common language. If you wanted to hear the word of God for the first 1,500 years of the church's life, where would you have to go? To church. To hear God's word. So by all means, read it in your own life. But your personal intake of the Bible is not sufficient. We need to hear the word of God proclaimed. This is why the preaching of the word is the central feature of a church's life. Because this is how Christ intends for us to grow. Listen, on the surface, sermons are odd things on the surface. If you think about it, one guy talking for a long period of time from an ancient text to the watching world, that's odd. So why do we do this? Why are we doing this right now? Not because of tradition, not because of 
things churches have always done, not because pastors are super spiritual beings. No, we we believe in the primacy of the preached word because on the basis of Ephesians 4, the Bible proclaimed in the life of the church is Christ's means of growing us in grace. Friends, I hope this reshapes your perspective on church worship. Or at least reminds you of what you already hold dear. These minutes, these few minutes that we spend together on Sunday are nothing less than the outworking of the heavenly grace of Christ given to us each and every Lord's Day, not through a person, but through God's Word. These few moments are precious. It's Christ's grace to us. He's the Good Shepherd, and He's not left us alone. He's given us His Word. And he's given us shepherds who will feed us with that word. This then is our second conviction for ministry as a church. Each Christian grows in grace. How? Through the ministry of Christ's word in the church. That's conviction number two. That brings us to the third and final conviction regarding ministry. We've been building up to this point. I already told you it was coming. Every believer is equipped with Christ's grace. We grow in that grace through the ministry of the word and therefore conviction number three, every church member is essential in Christ's work of building the body. This is the capstone. Every church member is essential in Christ's work of building the body. In the flow of the passage, verse 11 refers to pastors, which we just saw, and that prompts a question. If pastors minister the word, what's the goal of that ministry? What are we aiming at when we preach sermons? Paul gives you the answer. Next phrase, verse 12. What are we aiming at? To equip the saints for the work of ministry. Friends, that's a paradigm-shifting statement. Notice that pastors are not called to do the work of the ministry. They are called to equip the saints to do the work of the ministry. Remember what we said at the outset. Who are the saints? You and me, members of the body of Christ, the church. This is the whole reason why Christ gives grace in verse 7. It's because the body as a whole is called to do the work of ministry. This is the biblical mindset on ministry that we absolutely need to recover in our churches. Somehow, along the way, we distorted this idea. Somehow, along the way, we turned the ministry into something reserved for a clerical class of people within the church. But the biblical model is strikingly different, isn't it? The ministry belongs to the saints as a whole, Paul says. To be sure, some are called in a unique way, as we noted just in verse 11, but even those uniquely called shepherds exist to do what? Equip you for the work of ministry, to equip the body. And this biblical model that Paul's laying out in these verses is remarkably compelling. Notice in verse 12 how the entire church is involved in building itself up in love. Look at the last phrase, verse 12. What's the goal of the ministry of the word? To equip the saints for the work of the ministry. What's the result of that? For building up the body of Christ. I love the simplicity of that definition. What is ministry? It's building up the church. That's what it is making the faith of God's people stronger. Who does that ministry? The saints, everyone, 
the church together, the entire body engaged, fulfilling the work of Christ that he's given to his church. Friends, that is a remarkably compelling picture of the body of Christ. And at this point, we could go any number of ways to make some application regarding what this ministry looks like in practice. And in fact, that might be a good conversation point for you this in the weeks ahead with other church members. Talk with other members about some practical ways to build up other believers in the faith. I mean, the threads of application running out from verse 12 are, are too numerous to list. But in keeping with the simplicity of the text, I want to offer just two simple ways each member can be engaged in the ministry. These, these are not gift-specific. You don't need to take a spiritual gift inventory to determine whether or not you can do these two ministries. You don't need special training. If you're a Christian, then Christ has gifted you to minister in these two simple ways. It's just two words. Serve and care. Serve and care. Let's flesh those out just a little bit to make some application. To build up the body, each member is called to serve. Service is the engine of nearly every ministry in the church. From children's ministry to setting up chairs to working on the budget to playing music to following up with visitors to cleaning up the physical space to running sound to taking up the offering. Those acts may seem small, but like the engine in a car, that kind of service makes the ministry run. So at the core, how do we engage in the work of building up the church? We serve. And friends, if you see an area in the church that needs more organization and direction and service, come talk to us. You very well could be the means that the Lord has appointed to address that need. By the way, that's what we will ask you to do. Is address that need. So how do we build up the body of Christ? We serve. We serve. That's number one. The second word is just as key, if not more so, to build up the body. Each member is called to care. To care. More specifically, we're called to care about one another's spiritual health. What does that look like? It takes so many forms, I can't list them all. But I tried. Here are some examples. What does it look like to care? Pray for each other. Faithfully attend the church's gatherings. Notice who is not here on Sunday and reach out to them. Greet people who are new and ask questions to get to know them. Sacrificially give to meet the church's financial needs. Invite another Christian to read through the Bible with you. Ask a parent how things are going with their kids, and then text them encouragement from the Bible because parenting is hard. Confess your sin to each other and ask how that person needs prayer to grow. Reach out to people who seem to be drifting away. We all see it. Reach out to them. Arrive early to church and stay late solely for the purpose of talking to other believers. Remember important events in each other's lives and then reach out with encouragement or prayer on those dates. And on and on and on we could go. 
Brothers and sisters, what I'm trying to do is to get us to see that discipleship is simply taking the initiative to care for someone with the scriptures so that we all follow Jesus more faithfully. That's it. That's discipleship. Taking the initiative to care, with, to care for someone with the scriptures so that we all follow Jesus more faithfully. And Paul's point in Ephesians 4 is that each one of us has been given grace to do this work. In fact, our church will not be as healthy as we need to be apart from you and I taking up this kind of ministry. Let's just acknowledge what should be very clear to all of us. The spiritual health of the church is beyond what a small group of people can accomplish. Yes, the elders have a unique role in shepherding the church. We have a biblical responsibility to equip you and to model godliness and to teach the word of God. Yes, we hire staff to consistently carry out some key aspects of ministry. Absolutely. But brothers and sisters, if we leave all the ministry to elders or staff, we are not going to be as strong and healthy as a church as we need to be. We'll actually be pretty truncated. Who's equipped to do the ministry according to Ephesians 4? The saints are, you and I, together. And that means every church member is essential to Christ's work of building up the body. Every member. So let's, let's return to that question at the outset of the sermon. Are you called to the ministry? Well, the answer, friends, is yes from Ephesians 4. The answer is yes. It's a wonderfully compelling picture of what Christ calls his church to be. So these are our convictions. Every believer equipped with Christ's grace. Every Christian growing in that grace through Christ's word. And therefore every member essential to Christ's work in the church. Those are our convictions. You know, the the gospel is the most glorious message in the universe. The only reason that I'm here today doing this is because of the gospel of Jesus Christ. The glory of the gospel is almost beyond comprehension that the Son of God would lay aside His glory, that He would take on flesh for us and our salvation, that He would perfectly obey the Word of God, that He would completely pay our sin debt, satisfying God's wrath, that He would conquer the grave rising again on the third day, that he would open the way into the presence of God, ascending again to the Father's right hand. There is no message, there is no message as glorious as the gospel. Amen? The only reason I'm here is because Jesus Christ loves sinners, of whom I am the foremost. And what I want us to see, brothers and sisters, is that the echoes of the gospel's glory are present In the church. The reason we ought to care about the church is because Jesus cares about the church. For whom did Christ die? For his church. He loves his church. That's why we care about these things. That's why the ministry of the church matters. How we carry out the ministry is not disconnected from the gospel. In fact, when each member is engaged in building up the body, the gospel becomes clearer. In a church where every member is equipped and every member is engaged, the gospel shines most brightly as the world sees a group of people, congregations that should be 
so different and have so little in common other than Christ as the world sees those kind of churches engaged, equipped, and ministering to Christ's grace, the gospel shines most brightly. That's why we care about the church and her ministry. Because we want to love the things that Jesus loves, and he loves his church. So let's press on. Let's press on in faithfulness to this kind of ministry, not for our sake, but for the gospel's sake, to the glory of Christ. Amen? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we want to do ministry in the way that you call us to do. We want to be biblical, Father, both in our confession of faith and also in our practice of the faith. So we pray, Father, we pray that we would continue to grow in an Ephesians 4 model of ministry. We have not arrived. We will never arrive this side of glory. But help us, Father, to humbly pursue this kind of growth, this kind of ministry, for the glory of Christ, for the sake of the gospel, for the good of his body. We pray, Father, that Jesus would receive all glory and praise through the life and ministry of First Baptist Fisherville as our life together and our ministry among one another is shaped more and more by the Bible. Father, help us to be biblical both in our confession of the faith and in our practice. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.